everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast, the only podcast where Christmas comes approximately a year after you spend a lot of time on Kickstarter. I'm your host for tonight, Mr. Mark Teske, along with my co-host, Jake Kloppenstein. Jake, have you had a wave of Kickstarter stuff just arrive at your doorstep this week? Yeah, so surprisingly, I actually haven't gotten a lot of games from Kickstarter recently. Uh, Last year, I tried to kind of pump the brakes on the whole Kickstarter engine, and uh, I haven't gotten a lot. There is about four games that'll probably come the next two months from Kickstarter, but the kind of interesting thing about my Kickstarter now is I think nine of the 11 games I have on pre-order are 18xx games, so clearly you can see where my tastes have gone. What have you gotten in the mail there, bud? So all in one week, somehow I managed to get, uh, I got the Root expansion coming like Monday. Nice. I got Demacher, which is a, you don't know about Demacher. It's about a 20-year-old game. That's about elections in the German parliament. Riveting. Sounds great, right? Riveting. Riveting, yes. But it's supposed to be an awesome game. So uh, that showed up yesterday. And the one I'm kind of weirdly most excited about, I've got a big box of Jordan Draper stuff. I got Tokyo Metro. I got... Tokyo Tsukiji Market, and I got Tokyo Jito Hanbaki. Sure. Great. Something That's like that. Great. It's a game about vending machines and bottles of pop in Tokyo. That's a whole bunch of mini games. Jake, I have no idea if these games are going to be good anymore, but the design lover in me that loves Oink games is squeeing really hard right now. Yeah, it certainly has that kind of Japanese minimalist art style that we've kind of grown to love. So I am excited to try them. I think it'll be really fun. I, I have no idea if these games are going to be good anymore, but I, I heard a point today that I actually thought was one of the best points I've ever heard made about Jordan Draper is that it's great that he's out there doing things that aren't safe, good, bad, or otherwise. And man, I couldn't agree more. I love that somebody's doing that. We have an action-packed episode for the listeners today. Let's hop right into it. Let's start with what we played this week. And we actually got to play games together the last two weeks in a row. How fun is that? That is great. Yeah, we did. It's 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 weird that we've been able to line that one up because we've had so many times that that hasn't worked out. We're each running games. But I think this time we sort of made a conscious point of saying, Jake, we're playing these games together. Let's do it. Let's figure out a way to have other people lead games this week. So we did get a chance. And the first one that I got a chance to teach you this week was a larger game that I honestly wasn't that interested in for the longest time. I, I, I heard a lot of buzz about it six months, a year ago. And um, a couple of weeks ago, I was introduced to it. And that game is Teotihuacan City of Gods by Danielle Tashini, published by NSKN Games. And this is a game about, um, oh, theoretically, you're trying to please the gods in the Mayan culture. You're trying to build pyramids. You're trying to gain resources. And you're trying to uh, visit the temple and continue to please the gods while occasionally ascending to heaven and scoring things when eclipses happen. That accurately summarize it? Yeah, absolutely. You did a great job on the theme. But for the Eurogame players, really all you're doing is moving dice workers around a rondelle. And every space on the outside of this rondelle that is a shared rondelle by everybody is an action spot. And then depending on what other people's workers are there, you have to pay something kind of similar to Yokohama. But instead of in Yokohama, where you have to pay to move through, you actually pay to do the action in the same spot as someone else. Then every time your worker does an action, or for the most part, a lot of the action spots, They may get a little stronger, and depending on how many workers or however many what the dice face are showing actually on your dice workers that are out there determines the strength of the actions. But the other thing that's really neat about this game on top of the rondelle is there's this little pyramid that you're building on 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 the board that are made of these little kind of flat two by what do you say half an inch wooden tiles with four different icons printed on top. Quarter inch, maybe. Yeah, something like that. And you're functionally just building all these up to make a little temple. And it's it's a really fun worker placement game. I or I, I had a great time with it. I enjoyed all that it had to offer. I enjoyed the dice moving mechanism. I enjoyed how many layers of questions and resources you had to manage in this game. And I think it's totally a winner. I can see why I was so hyped about six months ago. I have heard from people that I trust in the internet that the game gets worse with every repeat play, but it seems like the people we've played with locally really enjoy it kind of more and more as they keep on playing. Have you heard the same thing, Mark? Yeah, I've got a number of friends that have actually played it piles of times. It's one of their favorite games of the year. And if anything, the hype has increased rather than decreased. So I think it's maybe one of those that if you're really into niche heavy games, maybe it loses its luster. But if you're a person that likes standard midway euro, that it has a lot of a lot of things to offer on that one. Agreed. Yeah, this game, it really has every fun euro mechanism you'd want out of it. A bunch of different things you can chase bunch of different strategies, things you can ignore, things you can do well. It's it's fun. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really good game. 
after the first time I played it, and I, I actually think I'm stronger on this opinion now, is that it feels to me a lot like a two-dimensional Yokohama, where you're moving your workers around and taking that strength action. But instead of just how many pieces you have there, it's how many pieces you have there and the strength. I also think there's a nice little mishmash of like the God track coming out of Terra Mystica or uh, Gaia Project in that in the in the God track where each thing gets you some benefits as you go up that uh, little three dimensionality of maybe some of the Uva Rosenberg tile laying games. I don't know this. It, it's neat. I will say my downside of it, having run it now, there's a little fiddly to it, Jake. There's some subsystems there and there's a lot. There's a few little. Oh, and by the way, don't forget to also do this thing when you do that. And there's a number of times we had to backtrack because we forgot to do one or two little thing, extra steps along the way. Right. And my point to that is what the hell happened to reference cards and board games? I feel like when I first started off in this hobby and I was getting into games, even games of this weight, they'd have four or five cards that would have what you do on your turn on it. And I don't know why they don't do that anymore. It just, it's, it's not listed anywhere. You just have to remember, you can either like get your guys back for the thing, unlock your guys, all these different things you can do in your turn. And it, it just doesn't say that anymore. And I don't know why every single game does not come with a little reference card to help first time plays. And it's, it's very frustrating because if they had that one thing, I wouldn't be asking you. So if I want to unlock all my guys, is that all I do on my turn again? At its core, it's actually a pretty simple game. There's not many things you can do. You either move your dice. And you take the action that's at that thing, or you move your dice and you lock into the temple there and take the god action, or you move there and you take cacao. So from a reference card viewpoint, if they were going to make that, they'd literally have to put a, well, here's how every location works as well, because that's sort of where the crux of the difficulty lies. Sure, but I mean, it's double sided. They could just reference each one. It's just I, I don't know what happened in these games, but so many games used to come with reference cards. And I don't know what's happened, but I feel like I never see them anymore. Even for games like Arboretum, just something that explains how to score a path, put it in there. I, I don't know. I mean, they, they, they waste money on printing their entire like games catalog and other games publishers do. So give us reference cards. It's what I want. I don't, don't make me go to BGG and print off everything for every single little game. No, I think you're right on that one. I'm actually a little surprised in hindsight that it doesn't have a reference card because as soon as you mentioned that, I went, oh, son of a gun, it doesn't have one, does it? It's, it feels like it should. Agreed. So that was Teotihuacan, City of the Gods, Teotihuacan by NSKN Games and Daniel Tashini. What would you give it on the mogul scale there, bud? This is a 3C. Maybe a little bit on the fiddly. So it's like a 3 plus C. It's, it's a hair on the fiddly side for 3, I think. Agreed. There's some subsystems, but if you're an experienced Euro player, it's not that hard. I maybe could get an argument that this is a 4C, but calling it a 4C just feels wrong. It just doesn't. No, it's not yeah. as complicated as like Gaia Project is or something along those lines, which I think is confidently a 4D. I will say that one of the things that I think this game has in spades is the production on it is gorgeous. This is a beautiful game. The wood pieces are great. The art is great. Everything about this game is beautiful. And I paid $31 from it from an online game store. That's awesome. Boy, that's hard to beat. Yeah, that's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 cheap as they get, especially now in the the age of one hundred and twenty dollar euro games from Kickstarter. The fact that you can get a good game for sure for 30 bucks. Yeah. So that's awesome. I would highly recommend it. Teotihuacan City of Gods. Yeah, I'm sure the listeners will hear us talk about it more as we play it down the line. Um, the second game we got to play on the same night that we played Teotihuacan was uh, a game by Yellow which was kind of a small box game that I didn't really know much about besides some people online really liked it. But J-Mac has owned it forever and he has never really brought it. But you recently borrowed it from him, I think, and got your own copy, correct? Yeah, J-Mac gave me one of them for Christmas, actually, after he heard how much I liked this game. And the game we're talking about is Biblios by Steve Finn, published by Yellow. This is not that new of a game either. I don't know how long it I don't know why it took it so long to come across our plate, Jake. Agreed. So in Biblios, you are, <laughs> I don't know, should we even describe the theme in this game? You're talking like building Bibles, right? Aren't you like different monks assembling Bibles? There is zero theme there, in this game. There's no theme whatsoever. <laughs> absolutely no theme. Functionally, there's a deck of cards that has six suits um, and some special cards. The special cards will relate to each one of the, one, one of the special suits. So each of the five suits, they're either red, blue, green, yellow, and I think orange, maybe brown or something. Um, they each have a D6 on them as well. So every suit is worth three points at the very start of the game. But what you're doing is there's kind of two different phases of this game. You first are going to draft the entire deck of these cards. And then 
after the weird kind of drafting aspect of it works, which I'll touch about in just a bit, we're going to auction for the rest of the cards that we put aside. And then depending on all those auctions, all those cards are paid out. We will functionally compete for each one of the values of each one of these five suited things, depending on who has the majority of points in that suit. The five suits are those colored ones. And then they also have gold. What's interesting about gold is gold is the only thing you actually use in auctions to buy the other cards of the five suits that will come up after you do all that drafting. But to buy the gold in that auction phase, you actually have to use cards. So if Mark bids two cards for, let's say, a three gold card, I could beat him by bidding three cards for a two gold card or something along those lines, whatever I said. Um, And it's really interesting because it's kind of this push and pull on what you really want to care about having in your hand. And it's this really crazy addition to hand management that is is pretty fun. And maybe you really were going for the green, but you couldn't win a specific auction. So now you're just going to dump all your cards of that green because they're not worth it. Mark has more than you, you know, so you can win some gold and win some other auctions. And it's neat. I, I can tell what you like about this game. Some funny things happen, too, because I found out my first playthrough that this was a bad strategy. And I think Eric learned this one the hard way that there was a point at which he decided that there was a three gold card up for auction. He basically paid. What do you do? He paid three cards for it. But the three cards he paid were three single golds or like two single golds and another one. Well, after that, what happened later on in the game is he was stuck with two three gold cards. So literally the only bids he could make were three or six because he had. He got rid of all his change trying to buy up these big ones, trying to keep somebody else from getting them. Right. No, it's 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 great. I think this is one of the games I was actually kind of sad we didn't play two times in a row because I think it's a game that really rewards some nuanced strategy. The other thing we haven't mentioned is so every suit is worth a certain amount at the very start of the game. It's three. But the reason that they're D6s is, is there's all these other cards that will increase or decrease the value of a certain suit by whatever amount it says on that card. I think they're only plus or minus one, right, Mark? Yeah, and there's also a card that is a take, make one plus one and make another dice minus one. I think there's one of those and then there's a couple plus ones and a couple minus one cards in there. Right, so maybe if you have a bunch of brown cards and you're really going for it, then maybe you make your brown worth four or five and then because you own that one and maybe squeaked away with another win on some other color, you're able to win the game. It's it's really neat. I I enjoyed what it had to offer. It kind of had an almost winky level of simplicity to it that I think we kind of associate with that publisher. And man, it, it's a neat little game. That's a good take. That very easily could be an oink game. Might be a little rulesy for an oink game, but having said that, there ain't that many rules here. Mm-hmm. It's just the kind of procedural how you distribute all of these cards becomes kind of interesting. And I'm not going to explain it for listeners, but read the rule book if you if you're really that interested in learning on it but there's like this weird draft thing at the beginning that makes it fun so you kind of know what's in the deck my only real concern with this game is i wanted it to be kind of like arboretum where and we play arboretum where you we actually splay the discard piles so you can kind of count cards and you can't really do that in biblios maybe for the benefit of the game but i wanted to be able to be like okay i know however many greens are out there i have this many i've seen in the discard pile this many there it is. But you actually don't track the discard pile, so you can't 100% be sure. Yeah, and I was doing things like I was purposely stuffing big cards of the thing that I was trying to collect into the discard pile, knowing that a certain, or sorry, the smaller ones of that one into the discard pile, knowing that some of those would come up, hoping that I'd be able to buy them at a discount. Because a lot of times what happens in the auction is people overpay early on, and there's some amazing bargains to happen in the later half of the auction round. So I was hoping that I could pick up a few cards and the things I was trying to collect at a bargain later on. And ultimately, that did sort of work. And I ended up not winning on a bad tiebreaker. Gotcha. Yeah, you should have changed. I think all of the value adjustments were placed to brown only. Well, brown and blue. There was a huge fight over those two that they were just both going up and down the entire game. Right. And so I think if somebody would have changed a lower one, you could have maybe secured the win or whatever. But yeah, that is Biblios. Fun little game. Might try to hunt down a copy. It's just it's one of those games that is deceiving because when you teach it to somebody, it's like, oh, it's really simple. But I feel like this is one of the games that playing well is really hard in it. And uh, yep. I, I, oh, yeah. I don't know. What would you get on the mogul skill, Mark? I think this is a 1B. Rules are pretty quick. It's a, I, I taught it to you in sub five minutes and B level of strategy. There's not a million things to do in there, but it takes some thought. Agreed. So, Jake, uh, last week. We didn't get a chance to play together. And while I was busy playing Aura and Labor, I looked over at the table and you were playing a couple games that I didn't recognize that I'd heard of, but had no idea anything about them. And Jake, what were you playing? I was playing two kind of interesting games. One I like a lot more than the other. We'll start with the bad one first. Um, not the bad one. It's not that bad of a game. 
I played QE, which is published by Board Game Tables, designed by Gavin Birnbaum. QE stands for quantitative easing, quantitative, quantitative. One of those two words. Quantitative, Quantitative. I Quantitative easing. And it's a thing that the government will do to, I believe, like stave off some industry loss. So they'll like give people money. I don't know. I'm a freaking food scientist. This stuff's all about my favorite. But anyway, what you're doing in this game is we are different governments bidding on different industries. And whoever has the most of these industries at the end, there's a certain like set collection aspect of this. Once you figure it all out, will win. With the catch of whoever spent the most money will completely lose. So that was me. I had the most points at 32, but it also spent the most money on all this uh, quantitative, quantitative, quant- all the QEing, quantitative, quantitative all the quantitative easing, <laughs> and I'd ease too hard. So I ended up losing. I haven't explained the interesting thing, though. So it's a complete blind bid. But normally with these games, if it's a blind bid, you usually have tokens you put in your hand or something. Then we all flip over and everyone shows. Not in this game. Everyone's bidding placard is a, a whiteboard eraser. And so what you do is you write down however much you want to bid. It can be any number that exists. That's a whole number. And you put it face down in front of the person who's currently the auctioneer. The auctioneer has to start with a face up bid. So let's say Mark's the auctioneer and he starts with $600. Then I write down yada yada and everybody else writes down something to give it. Then the auctioneer will then award this to somebody. It could be themselves if they're the highest bidder. And then that's it. There's a one time per game ability that everybody can cross off on their little board to see what the winning bid was. But I mean, it's really anything. I mean, it kind of depended on what our meta was, but it seemed like things went for about a thousand ish to four thousand ish dollars each for each one of the uh, industries. But it's weird. It's, it's definitely one of those games that could be broken pretty easily, which I'm sure people have heard online. But All it takes is one person or three people not agreeing to whatever the first bid is by an order of magnitude. So if like Mark is the first person, he puts it $1,000. If the rest of the table just says, okay, if the rest of the things we win all are less than $1,000, one of us will win because Mark will definitely be the person that's out. If all the addition of the like four or five things we buy is less than $1,000, Mark will lose. So it was interesting to see how all that worked, but I don't know. I I don't know I'd play this game over like any other auction game. So could that metagame hack be fixed by just making like a uh, grizzled style no table talk rule i think it could even be fixed by the fact that you just have to put the next bid within the same like number neighborhood so if someone starts with like a thousand dollars for the first bid and then the next person bids also around a thousand dollars okay cool we got a game now but if one person bids and then everyone says okay let's divide that by 17 or whatever then the game will just break right because you're only going to be able to buy i think there's 15 or 16 of these industries and I mean, kind of figure out how much things buy. I think about four or five of them and I ended up losing. So if four or five of my things were added up less than a thousand, I would win the game or whatever. I, I definitely wouldn't lose. You know, this is one I've kind of had my eye on. I mean, it sounds interesting in concept and it sounds kind of like you're just wacky enough that it's something I would enjoy. But I have the same concerns you do, and your review of it wasn't exactly glowing after playing it. I mean, it was it was fun. It's, it's a game I'm certainly not going to ever turn down playing. I don't know why this game would beat any other auction games. You know, like I'd much rather play Raw than this, without a doubt. I'd much rather play Modern Art than this, without a doubt. In in a space with both those games, does QE even really need to exist? I I don't know. Well, I think the hook there is is that bit about that you can write any number down, you know, 14 quintillion dollars. Right. I think just that concept by itself is fun where you know I I might lose if I do that. But the idea that I can literally write any number I want is sort of where the uh, the creative stress comes from while playing the game. Right. But by the same point, if you do that, when the market is at a certain point, the game's over for you. If you bid too much, it's it's over. Right. And so you don't really want to go more than like two or three hundred percent of what the maybe the, the the person who wrote their bid face up is because you don't want to like completely throw the game away. But it was an OK game. I, I'm certainly down to play it any time, but I'm not going to be rushing out to the stores to buy it. And I would not suggest other people rush out to the stores to buy it as well. So that is QE. I'd give it a one A. It's about as simple as games get. What was the other game you guys played? This one is the one I think was a glowing little gem. Um, this is Codontier by Z-Man Games, originally published by Fantasy Flight. Designed by Dominique Erhard and Duzio Vitali. So what you're doing in Condantier is you're different, I think, families in like Italy in the like 1400s or something. And you there's a map of Italy and you have a bunch of cards in your hand. And functionally, we're going to keep on playing these cards for a certain region. We're trying to control these regions. If you control three regions in a row, you win. Or 
if you control all if you control five regions, you win. And the way that you determine who wins is whoever has the highest score amongst their cards they've played once everybody passes in this region. Certain cards do special things. There's certain ones that make everybody's number only be a one. There's certain ones that make your whoever's the highest one times two. Kind of stuff like that. Pretty simple though, and it's a really fun little area control game that I think took maybe 35 minutes, 45 minutes with teach and setup and everything. Had a great presentation with the Z-Man Games version too. It was really fun. I really think I'm going to get a copy of this and play it because it's technically an area control game, but it's really just like a hand management game with area control as a scoring version of it because you can never lose these areas you control. It's just whether or not you have the ones you need to get at the right time. But I think it'd be one you're really going to like, and I'm trying to get a copy because I think you're going to like it, Mark, and I think our game group will really like it as well. Was this just recently republished? Because I'm looking at it and it's like a 1995 release. This is older than dirt. Has this just been republished or something? I think so. I'm kind of unsure, but the Z-Man games version looked relatively new. And I think there might be some of the geek that could get the older version. But the new version came in a pretty good sized box, kind of one of those smaller ones. But it was a really cool little game and it was really elegant. The game got away out of the way pretty quickly. And it I, I think it's gonna be a game you like. I'm not gonna mention too much more because I do believe you'll play this game and I think you'll like it. On the mogul scale, I'd give that one a two B. Great. Sounds fun. Yeah, it was really fun. So before that, the 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 week before, we actually did end up playing together at the very last game of the night. Speaking of old games that were published forever ago by Fantasy Flight. Jake. One of my favorite games that I've played probably more than any other game is an old Fantasy Flight release that is maybe one of the best worker placement games out there on the market right now and is getting reprinted next year. I'm talking about Tribune Primus Inter Paris, which was released in 2007 originally, has been out of print forever and is coming back in print. And I'm super happy you finally got a chance to play it. This was a case where we had literally 90 minutes left before the end of the night and we're trying to figure out what to play. And we had five players, too. So five players, 90 minutes, kind of looking at my bag, scratching my chin, going, um, I don't know. At that point, Kirk happened to look into my bag, Uncle Kirk, and he just said, oh, Tribune, I'd love to play Tribune. I went, all right, I think I can teach this and we can let this roll in 90 minutes and by cracky, we got her done in exactly 90 minutes and we're packing up as they were kicking us out. But, ooh. That was a furiously fast game that I got absolutely rocked in. Yeah, even with your uh, kind of hand-waving math towards the end, you, you, you got away with it. <laughs> yeah, you ended, for, for the listeners, Mark kind of took something that he couldn't have information, but he didn't win anyway, so we just let it, let, it, let it slide. That was no big deal. Tribune, ultimately, it's a set collection game. It's You're trying to win the influence of different uh, factions by having a better set than the current set that's owning that faction. And you have to win that set either by playing more cards of that type or a higher total of that type. And if you do, you take advantage of that faction. And when it, it's good to be the king. If you're in charge of that faction, you get all kinds of bonuses. Like you get a cool bonus when you take control of that faction. And you also get a cool bonus every turn that you're in charge of that faction. Some of those factions get you money. Some of them get you favor of the gods. Other ones get you an extra worker. There's all kinds of neat little faction benefits. The main game is placing your workers out onto the board to get cards. And there's almost a bunch of little mini games on how you get those cards. Some of them you just straight up pay for. Other ones you have a little bidding auction for. Other ones you have to discard cards to get in return. And there's a huge variety of neat things to do in this game, which is why it's absolutely one of my favorite games. Another thing I really love about this game is that the game is done by when the scenario says it's done. I haven't seen many other games do this where there's literally scenario cards that are short, medium, long and number of players. And you sort of pick which scenario you're looking for. And based on that scenario, there are different endgame conditions and then you just score up what the actual point values are for those endgame conditions so you can tailor that game for anywhere from 60 minutes to three hours depending on what kind of a tribune experience you want and i think that's really cool yeah so jake what did you think after finally getting a chance to play tribune after hearing me yammer about this for two years i thought it was really cool it had a reference card which is really nice (laughs) it's it's kind of one of those games that feels interesting in what you're doing so you're just playing down cards to like take over the senators or whatever, the or the, the the Praetorians or whatever the heck. I'm not a Roman history person, but certain things kind of Voltron together to make you get different things that are worth more points at the end. Yeah, like the Tribune tokens or favor of the gods. Right. Like you have to have control of a certain faction and you have to have temporary favor of the gods and you have to have this other thing. So 
you sort of to get the really high scoring things, you have to have two or three things combined together to make that work. Right. That was really cool. And it was also really interesting not having it be like most worker placement games are also kind of like a cube pushing games where you have all these resources you're kind of shoving around to get other stuff. And maybe you can consider the cards resources. But I mean, it felt really different to have like a Euro game that wasn't like, OK, I have these are gold. These are X, Y, Z. These are other resources, you know, wood, sheep and whatever the heck you want to want it to be. But it was it was really neat. I, I enjoyed it. I'm excited to see what Spielworks, I believe, is going to reprint it and what they'll do with it. But I'd also really like to try the expansion because I've heard the expansion makes this game wonderful, which we just played the base game. Right, Mark? I agree with you completely. For all the times I've played this one, I have never played the expansion. I have the expansion, which is really difficult to get. Apparently, like one of the players gets to be the weather or something (laughs) like that, which which I love that in concept. So I have heard that as well for people that are really fans of this game, that the expansion really pushes it into new territory. And we need to try that soon. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, Tribune's a great game. It is a worker placement game that doesn't really feel like other cube pushing worker placement games, which is totally a, a good thing to say about the game. Another thing that I had just noticed here as I pulled this up on the on the geek and the designer of that game, Carl Heinz Schmiel. Mm-hmm. He's the designer of Demacher. Oh, he was killing it back in the 90s. I know. This game, when did this game come out? 2007. Demacher is much older than that. Uh, so, you know, yeah. it's a designer with some great pedigree. Yeah, no, it, I, I'm totally down to play this game anytime. And the fact that you can judge the length of it to anytime you want, this is totally a winner. I wouldn't say go get it, but we don't know when the new edition is going to come out. Yeah, we think uh, later this year, I think is what I've heard. Yeah, we'll have to see. I don't know. Get your news sources here. Later this year, I think I've what I've heard. <laughs> That's Tribune, Primus Inter Paris, published originally by FFG and Carl Heinz Schmiel. What would you give it on the mogul scale? That's a 3C. The last one I want to talk about is me finally crossing a milestone that I've been working towards for, well, since I started this podcast. That milestone is I have now played every single Oink game that I have available to me. Now, you actually went and screwed that up on me recently, but I know, right? For a brief, <laughs> glorious moment, I have played every game that it's every Oink game that's possible to play. There are some that are super hard to get. You just got one of them that's super hard to get. What up with that? Yeah, so if you subscribe to games on PGG, you can see whenever people post them to the market. And someone posted a copy of Rights to the market for, I think, $18, including shipping. So your boy bought bought it, and now we have to play it sometime. For sure. But anywho, which one did you play, Mark? Rights for, just in short, it would be Startups 1.0. Yeah, and it's not easy to get. It's one of those ones that you don't really see on like Amazon.co.jp very often, and you don't usually see it on like the European game sites. They didn't bring it to any of the conventions that I've been to, and they brought some of their other games that are only available in Japan. But somehow I got a copy, so I'm cool. So the one I got played is is curiously one of the easiest ones to find here in the U.S. at least. It seems like there's always a pile of them, eh, probably because the reputation is out there that maybe this isn't one of their best efforts. And that game is Pyramid's Deadline by Jun Sasaki and Oink Games. The idea behind Pyramid's Deadline is that you're trying to build a pyramid. Depending on how tall you make the pyramid, you score much, much, much more. And there's a series of tiles you can pick from to build your pyramid. And when a certain number of the pharaoh tiles are picked up, the pharaoh dies and the game ends. It's a push-your-luck game at its core. How big can I make my pyramid before the pharaoh dies? Well, plush risk mitigation, because you need what pieces you have to be able to place all your pieces, right? Yeah, you when you right, take it, right, yes. right, right. like you can always find a place to put your piece. But the problem is, is that may be something that makes your pyramid much wider, which makes it harder to finish because there are a bunch of rules on like what constitutes a finished pyramid. Yep. And by the way, once you're done with your pyramid, you're you know, once you put the capstone on hands off, you're done. <laughs> no more building. You can't make it wider if people are taking a long time. So what I had always heard about this game is this that this wasn't a very good one and that it was actually, in fact, I heard it was straight up bad. So this has been languishing on my shelf for a solid year since I bought it. And finally, I decided, you know what, completionist, I, I got to play this one and just find out what all the not fuss is about. I actually kind of liked it, Jake. I'm not going to lie. I don't think it was as bad as it's being made out to be. So I would mostly agree. I don't I, I don't think it's a bad game. I think it's their weakest one in their title or definitely bottom tier. but. It is certainly not one of the top tier oinks. And if I was not a collector of this, this would have been traded or sold away a long, long, long time ago. Yeah. And, you know, perspective here. To me, this is, you know, if I was going to give all the oinks somewhere between an A and an F, this is a C title. I don't think which it's ones a D- would you give an F then? Oh, I well, an F. OK, so 
I have a weird take on which ones are F's. I mean, to me, like Insider is an F. <laughs> Fake Artist Goes to New York is an F. All the party games are F's. I don't like Tomo yep. Tomato. I don't like. Yep. What's that? Zogan Bogan Fogan. Ah, I hate that game. The speed game one. Yeah. Yep. Those to me are the F ones. If there's one that actually has some little push your luck or some strategy or some thinkiness to it, I'm going to like those more than the ones that are just pure straight up party game. And again, I may be rating these on my like of them rather than their merits as a game, because that's all we can do. uh, Objectively, Insider's not a bad game, right? I just happen to hate it because I hate 20 questions, but it's a good game (laughs) and I would recommend it to other people. But to me, it's an F because I hate 20 questions. So this one in my personal ranking system is a C. I like the push your luck aspect about it. I really decided it's just a different version of Deep Sea Adventure, actually. I have heard this. And once you said, hey, I like Pyramid's Deadline, what's up? I immediately grabbed it off the shelf and convinced the wife to play it with me because I wanted to make sure I was somewhat current on it. But I I don't know what you mean by that. In Deep Sea Adventure, the only thing that you have decision wise is when you decide to turn back up and how many things you're going to pick up along the way. You might be able to drop some stuff off as well, but we'll ignore that for this this thing. The scoring in that game is completely simpler, probably by an order of magnitude, than the scoring and building of the pyramid is in Pyramid's Deadline. If the game really boils down to a push-your-luck dice selection drafting game, then wow, that game's even less good than I thought it was. Because, I mean, the, the, the building is somewhat complicated, and it's somewhat involved. That, I think, is a big selling point of that game. What we might be highlighting here, Jake, is your mental difficulty with spatial games. No, I'm great at spatial games. Which is why you love Feast for Odin? I don't know. I, I, I love number <laughs> nine. I love I love Patchwork. I think Patchwork's a great game. So I didn't find that building the pyramid very difficult at all. The only, you know, the decision in there was, mm, when do I start building up versus how, you know, once you start going wide and not going up, at a certain point you have to pivot and start going up instead of going wide. And that to me was kind of the decision on there. I found it actually pretty easy to build the pyramid. And the pyramid to me was a fancy scoring mechanism. Whereas the the real decision was the push your luck on what tile do I take versus how wide do I make it? Like, what's my plan and how I'm going to build my pyramid? The actual p- building of the pyramid I found to be pretty simple. Yeah, I mean, it is simple. I mean, this game's a 1A on our mogul skill. There's no way it's not. But I mean, it's compared this game to like number nine, or which has no interaction. So I guess this one would take that or what's some other stacky game dragon castle or something along those lines. I don't know when I would ever reach a pyramids deadline above that. It is faster and it's a smaller presentation of it, but it has not a lot of the game in it that I'm kind of looking for whenever I'm building a kind of puzzly little game or patchwork or something along those lines. So the other reason that I brought up a relationship to Deep Sea Adventure is one of the big strategies in Deep Sea Adventure, and there's more strategies than you name, Jake. One of them is the, the, do I decide to turn back quickly and hose everybody else with oxygen? Yeah, I didn't say strategies, it's decisions. Got it. Okay. Not, 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 not strategies, decisions that you make in that game. I totally did that with Pyramid's Deadline, where I saw everybody else going wide and trying to build big grand pyramid. So I purposely made a small one and immediately started taking the tiles, eating the tiles to kill the Pharaoh and <laughs> trying to shut it right. down early. And we ended up playing it four times in a row because my son was getting so frustrated. He literally, I just want to finish one pyramid in this game. I just want to finish one. So that was the meta in your game then always oh, building yeah. up because oh, yeah. you, because, because you can build up as you build sideways. Sure. You just can't build further down. But there was definitely a meta of finish your pyramid fast and choke everybody else. Right. Because yeah, that, that that's how it works. If is doesn't the game end if everybody has finished their period besides our pyramid one time besides one person, they they end it. Or if all the pharaoh tiles are gone, what happens is if you get down to that last pharaoh pyramid, eventually you're going to be forced to take that one and kill the pharaoh, in which case you automatically die. Right, 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 right. No, I mean it's 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 not a awful game. I mean, I've certainly played worse things in the last while. It's just for what it is, there's better spatial games and there's better push your luck games. And I don't know if the push your luck in this game is really that hard. It's not, doesn't seem that interesting, but I don't know. It's each their own. Well, and you know, perspective here, this is a C tier game for me. I'm not saying that there aren't a lot better games out there. I'm merely saying that to me, there are worse on games. Agreed. Interesting that we're talking about better light games. Because our main topic today is all about great light games. Let's roll it back a year, Jake. A year ago, we came out with something called the Mogul Scale. And the Mogul Scale was a way for us to quantify what's a light game versus what's a heavy game. What we did is we split it out into two dimensions. Rather than just saying, well, it's a one to five heaviness, we split it into two dimensions. A number, one through five, that categorizes the rules weight. 
and a letter A through E, which tries to accommodate how strategically dense the decisions are in the game. So by pairing a letter axis and a number axis, you could then come up with a pairing that describes both how fiddly or how rules dense the game is versus how strategic dense the game is. And you've heard us in this episode and every other one talk about that one. So what we're planning on doing is we're planning on actually examining different sectors of that graph. Imagine, if you will, if you look at the Gaming Moguls logo, we've got our soon-to-be-named Mogul right in the middle there, by the way, contest ending soon. And then every other quadrant has a color. So we're looking at the lower left quadrant here, the one that's yellow. And these are the ones that are Moguls weight 1 or 2 and strategic depth A or B. These are the lightest of the light games. And Jake, why don't you tell us a little bit more about some of the games that are in this sector and what some of the hallmarks of games in this area are? So these games are definitely the games that you hear about from the board game evangelists. The people who are out there kind of spreading the good word that is board games. These games where you hear, okay, I'm going to go play Christmas. I'm going to Christmas with my family. What should I play? Something light that everybody can really get into, but usually the rules fade away really quickly. What are some of the games that actually exist in this category? I'm talking about like party games. Think of Cards Against Humanity. Think of Telestrations, games like those where they just really fade away quickly. It's really about just a vehicle for making people laugh. Think of filler games, games that take like 35 minutes. And you don't want a game that takes 35 minutes to have the rules take also 35 minutes. You want to have the rules take two minutes. So you can immediately hop into the game and just play it while you're kind of waiting to do something else or waiting for people to arrive, something along those lines. Um, Usually these are kind of the casual games gamers. You know, think about like games when you say to someone that's not into games what this hobby's about. My usual go-to is like games like Catan, Settlers of Catan. Most people have heard of Catan. It's in Target. it's it's, It's in Walmart. All those kind of games. On those buying lists that BGG puts out every holiday, and it seems like every media person puts out, these are the games that I think fall into the new gamers category. Oh, they, they absolutely dominate it. Yeah, for sure. Right. Where it's just like, what should I get my, my son who's 14 and just trying to get into games? You know, someone, they'll always be the big three of Ticket to Ride, Carcassonne, Catan, you know, the kind of Euro go-tos. You know, another category that I think is represented in this zone is dexterity games, because Kind of by nature, dexterity games tend not to have a lot of rules, although some of them do, and they definitely tend not to have a lot of strategy. So good dexterity games would be things like, well, Tokyo Highway, Rampage, Crokinole, Crokinole, Rampage. Yeah, these are all games that, you know, generally take a little bit of physical aim or flicking or something like that. Rhino Hero as well. For sure. Finally, you get things that are really tailored towards new gamers that are really easy to kind of understand and you feel like you've accomplished them, like you can play them earlier and afterwards you don't feel like an idiot after you played it. You played it and you feel like you played it at a high level, even though it may be pretty new to you. And a lot of these games are what we call gateway games. These would be games like King Domino, which has a five minute rule teach and kind of everybody can understand instantly how to play. And a game like Splendor, which is sort of, you know, baby's first engine builder, I guess I would call it. (laughs) Exactly. And they're games that are easy to play for the most part and easy to pick up. I would say that one other hallmark of this little niche is these games tend to be short. That yeah. they're they're off they're rarely longer than an hour. In fact, I'd go so far as to say they should never be longer than an hour. And they're short to teach, short to understand, and relatively quick to play because these are games that I feel could overstay their welcome pretty quickly if they ran on way too long, don't you think? Right. Right. And I think another testament to these games, too, is they can be taught out of the rules without somebody knowing the game. So, like, think of a game like Splendor. You know, you set it up, you read the rules. It's maybe like a page and a half of rules. I haven't read the Splendor rulebook in a while. while. But same thing with Catan and code names and things like that. You can really deduce what's going on pretty quickly especially with like Ticket to Ride. You know, they're, they're just fast games that you don't need for like example, PAX uh, Transhumanity to like sit down and like learn the game before you even think about bringing people in. This is a game not really geared towards people who pre-read the rules. You just, you, you set it up and go. Let's talk about that. Looking at the two dimensions of the rating on there, the first dimension is the weight. And we're talking about games that have a rules weight of one or two. Jake, what does that what does that mean? What does a one or two rules weight actually mean? And when the rubber hits the road. So to me, it usually means I can teach the game in under 10 minutes, which I can do harder games like that, too. But 
you there's usually not a lot of exceptions or like weird subsystems that don't interact with the rest of the game. They're usually pretty simple. Like let's compare a game like a, a Vitalis Erta game where it's like not actually a worker placement game. You go there and do like 18 things versus like Lords of Waterdeep where you just place a worker there and you get the stupid cubes. You know, that's it. There's no there's no subsystems. There's no anything like that. And then usually they kind of have a theme that makes it intuitive or graphic design language or something along those lines. So like in Ticket to Ride, how long do you need to connect something? You can kind of count little squares and all your little uh, locomotives fill in that area. You know, it kind of just makes sense on what it is. And I think that, um, you know, if you were to split between one and two, it's one of those things that uh, a one weight thing is something that literally has a single page of games. It's a game where literally having a reference sheet would be as long as the rules themselves. I think that's a good way of looking at it. Natural two rules weight is probably something that's about 10 minutes. And in both of these cases, I think these are games that most people could teach off the tip of their head. Don't you think? Yeah, especially if you're kind of used to teaching these styles of game. You know, maybe there are certain things that make it too a little bit harder to teach someone who's never, ever played games before. There's kind of some shared information that maybe gamers are used to versus like a one that usually don't need to rely on that information as much. You need to be very careful in that you don't define this segment by necessarily length of the rules or length of the game or size of the box, because, for example, Turin Market by Jordan Draper, right? One page of rules, five minute teach. And that maybe is the least intuitive one page rule teach I've ever taught. I can't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, a half, it's a half an hour to teach one page of rules because they don't make any sense. Agreed. Yeah. And I mean, hectic like Irish Gage. That's a one sheet page of paper that is front and back. And I do think it's a pretty simple game, but definitely don't think it's like a first game that you can ever play with somebody, you know. So the other dimension is the letter. And these are again, this quadrant in the lower left is the A and B strategy games. And I think one of the hallmarks of that strategy is that it's a very first order sort of strategy decision. First order meaning if this, then that. Not a, you know, if this, then maybe that, depending on if this is then that, you know, it's one of those that it's a very cause effect. Flip this switch, this light turns on. Flip that switch, that other light turns on. And again, that's easy for people to understand, internalize and plan ahead for. And we're not saying there's not strategy, you know, I mean, no, not at all. I'm sure people who are better at like Ticket to Ride will beat me and you at Ticket to Ride. Yes, it's strategy, though, that's easier for people to understand, internalize and plan for. There's still room for people to be good at planning for it, but it's not something that you have to go read a thesis paper on strategy in order to understand how things move. One other thing that kind of is important in strategy here is maybe this might not be true. And listeners, let us know if we don't if we're not hitting the mark here, but I definitely perceive a higher element of randomness in kind of these A-B strategy games. It's not as, I'm not going to say deterministic, but usually there's kind of like some fudging of like a dice roll or something that kind of makes it so no matter what, you kind of have to factor certain randomness in. Like let's take the difference between like Arboretum's discard pile being face up versus Biblios, kind of the same thing where it's like, You can really math out what you should do on everything with all the cards, seeing all of them. But in Biblios, it tends down. So you kind of have to like fudge the math a little bit, which I think can make it so it goes a little bit faster. There's just a higher dependence on the, oh, you roll this and get that. And that determines how much stuff you get. Or it's a, hey, we're going to flip a card over and whatever the card comes up, that's what we do next. Or that's what you get or something like that. So, yeah, there's definitely a higher element or dependency on randomness in a A or B level strategy game. Which makes sense because you want to have these games move. And if there's randomness certainly can help with AP uh, analysis paralysis because it, it, there you can't really a- analyze the game out to the nth degree. It's still going to come down to a die roll. It's still going to come down to a flip, you know, something along those lines. And I think also that is appealing to the type of people that prefer this type of game. If you are walking into something that's purely deterministic and you're a new player and you're playing against sharks, that can be awfully off-putting even for people like us walking into a a game like that. Whereas if, hey, you know, I always got a puncher's chance if I roll well. Right. That's appealing to somebody that's newer in gaming. All right. So I think kind of what we've realized about this section is a lot of the things that we just mentioned aren't exactly what we just said with all the strategy stuff. We usually like it when it's a simple, short, refined game where all the decisions are really meaningful and don't have a lot of randomness and kind of aren't just first order strategy at the first blush, if that makes sense. Would you agree with that, Mark? 
by what we talk about, you'd think that being that we are gaming moguls to the core, Jake, you would think that this is our least favorite part of our collection and least favorite part of our games. And I would actually disagree that this is actually probably, I would say, my second favorite, one of my favorite quadrants of all of them. A properly done 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B game is going to be one of my favorite games of all because I love the simplicity of it. I love the elegance of it. I love how I can teach it fast and have a meaningful experience. The challenge is determining what those games are and separating them for the games that are party games or from the games that are very random or dexterity games or something like that that we don't tend to care for and finding the ones that are really the nuggets in there. But the ones that are great in that sector are some of my favorites. How about you, Jake? Completely agree. I mean, hell, look at what we think about the Oink games. Most of the Oink games fit into this territory. A hundred percent. And that's why we love them. And these might not be appear in our top 20 game list, but I promise you, they probably get played a lot more than the games on our top 20 list because they're accessible. You can play with a wide range of people. You can teach it pretty quickly. The game fades away quickly. So why don't we explain what we specifically like about this and kind of see see how we can tie that to some of our favorite games in the sector. Well, I think you nailed it right there with your recent comment, Jake. The speed of teach is everything because I have a lot of even some of my gamer friends like they're they have a limit for how many rules they can ingest in one sitting. And at that point, they want to play something simple. They want to play something they can be playing in three minutes, but isn't just a little fluff thing. So a really well done game in this sector can be taught literally. No, no, no. It's simple. Do this, then this, then this, then this. And then we score up and it's just that, that and that. Oh, that's it. Great. Let's play. Fun usually ensues immediately thereafter. Completely agree. And then the other side of that is usually beyond that, there's the strategy kind of is determined pretty quickly. There's nothing worse than a game that's like kind of long and you just didn't get it. And I understand it's a learning game. So like that's it. But if you only play learning games and you never really dive into the strategy, it really sucks. But usually games in this territory, this sector here, you'll play the game somewhat competently your first time you play it just because the the accessibility of the strategy is there. You know, you can figure it out. It's not that obtuse. A corollary to that is because it's short, you know, if you hate it, it's done really quick. Or likewise, if you love it, you can run it back and play it several times in a row and refine that strategy really quickly. The next thing I really like about this is no matter how bad you may hate the game, at least it's over quickly. Like one of the ones that we always rail about me more than you is Point Salad, which we'll talk about later. But I mean, say what you will about that game. It's over in 30 minutes, you know, <laughs> I've, I've, I've sat through my wife watching The Bachelor for much longer than that. You know, it's, it, there's, there's certainly worse things going on in my life. And finally, I think another thing I love about these games, especially if you've got a night where you're playing a bunch of these things, it kind of becomes a bit of an hors d'oeuvre bar, right? I'm going to get myself here a uh, little smoky sausages and then I'm going to add to that some hummus and over here some nachos and cheese dip and And all of those things kind of put together make this yummy plate of bad for you goodness that you end up trying to fill up on. And uh, they all taste pretty good individually, which is fun. It's fun doing a bunch of different things. But the kind of corollary to that and kind of the thing that we don't like about this sector is I don't think tapas is a meal. And the same thing with a bunch of hors d'oeuvres kind of don't work the best to work as a meal. You know, like if you ever really get full on like chips and salsa, you're like, oh, God, I feel like crap. I wish I just ate some like carrots and like some some chicken breast or something. And it's kind of the same thing in games. I love these small midweight games, but if I only played them, I'd be I'd be wanting for something more. I, I don't think these can fully make a game night. Yeah, these don't uh, hit that little core of my brain that really likes to work hard and likes to flex and get in those extra couple of reps. That's not getting exercised in this thing. So if it's just a full night of that, it's sort of like going for, you know, if you're used to running marathons and you sort of went out walking with your friend, it was fun, but right. you didn't get your workout in. Right. And it's it's not one of those things saying that we're better than other people who enjoy these games. That's just where we stand with these. Purely personal taste. Truly personal. But there's a few other things that maybe aren't our favorite about this sector, Jake. Yeah, go ahead. And again, this is oh, this is personal taste. So maybe what we don't love personally love about this sector is that sometimes these games do have a bit too much chance for us. Some people love that. I actually like a little bit of chance in games. I don't I don't always love everything that's purely deterministic. But man, some of these games have way too much where it's just it feels like you know, I'm flipping a coin and that's how it turned out. Yeah, I, I actually have recently heard from other people that play games with me that they think I'm very chance adverse and I really don't like games with a lot of randomness in it. 
So that that kind of makes sense on why I don't like these this this realm of games. Definitely. Another thing we kind of don't like is we always joke about this, but I always would find it really funny if we get a new player into our game group and we have like nine people coming or whatever. And somebody says, "Okay, cool, I'm going to bring secret Hitler. And it's like we're just not party game people, especially at our Wednesday night. You know, I'll play party games on like a Friday with some beers and friends and all that stuff. But I really don't want to spend my my like kind of gamer games night playing party games. I I I don't seek out this hobby for that. I I just don't really need it. And I think, Mark, you're the same way, right? It's definitely it's about the crowds. I mean, there are definitely crowds where I realize that mm, if we got in a game of Secret Hitler, that that would actually be a good night of gaming for that particular crowd. But I definitely don't want to do that if I'm with my gamer buddies and we've got a chance to play something more substantial. Right. Yeah, you're, you're, I'm, I'm even worse than you. I don't really like any party games anymore besides uh, the resistance occasionally. But that's maybe a once a year thing. Um, yeah. What are some other things you don't like about this section? I think we just mentioned it right there. These might some of these are too light. Some of them are the you try them and you really figured it out literally before the rules are done. And it played out exactly as you thought. And it's one of those that, yep, you played and I don't ever need to play it again, which is probably a way of saying it's too light. And I don't think these are games that often have a lot of staying power. I do know people that have played hundreds of games of Splendor. I know people that have played hundreds of games of King Domino. But for me, I don't know that these are games that have a ton of staying power and that I can play repeatedly a lot of times. The other thing is it sometimes gets a little exhausting playing the same game six times for a night. Maybe not that. Yeah. <laughs> playing playing like six games in a night. So we play games from like six until midnight usually, right? So we usually fit like three-ish games in. And that time, maybe three or four, five if we were throwing in some small ones. But if we were to play like six to seven, like 45-minute games be too much of just like all we're doing just feels like you're racing it sometimes feels good to settle into like a two-hour three-hour experience yeah there are certainly occasions like had we have decided to run back biblios and go for a second go around i i would have been down with that but there's no way i would have wanted to play it a third time right well and then the other thing is would you want to play biblios all night you know like that's it well and i think you bring up a great point there these are not destination games right? right nobody just says hey it's biblios night tomorrow night that's something that's never going to happen in our world. Right. And I think that's because I think these games can kind of overstay their welcome, you know, and exactly as we said, we both really enjoyed Biblios. We both really enjoy XYZ oink game of the month, whatever one we're liking now. We still will not play just that oink game all night, no matter how good it is. I don't think I've ever done that. Never will do that. Lastly, I think that this is going to be a compliment espoused in a complaint that they must not overstay their welcome. The fact that they're short is a blessing. Can you imagine, Jake, a 1A game that runs on for four hours? Oh, my oh God. My. Yeah, that'd be ridiculous. <laughs> well, I think that's maybe people's main complaint with like Catan. You know, it's just like there's not well, there's trading point. and stuff, but it's like that game can run a while, especially if people are like really not doing everything and not presenting things. You know, I yeah, completely agree. With that in mind, we definitely we've talked about some of the industry leaders in this sector and we've talked about what we like and don't like in this sector. So. What would be a mogul segment without us rendering some opinions on this topic, which we shall shortly do? I know you've got some favorites in this zone, Jake. Why don't we talk about a few of those? Let's do it. So let's go from our least favorite to our most favorite. Did you rank them in a particular order there, Mark? Oh, Jake, you know me. It's no particular order. That Gosh, takes thought. I always, I always do a particular order. No, no, even no, 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 no. I just, I just poop out on the table. I like All right. Well, I will start with my first one, which is my uh, number four one, kind of the honorable mention of this, because I don't know if it even really counts. I'm going to say Crokinole. You've heard me wax poetically about this game. Absolutely. Absolutely. It counts in this sector. Yeah, it it does. But as much as I rail about whether it's a game or not, it's as much of a game as Tokyo Highway is. So the only reason I'm saying it's not is it's really expensive and it's an expensive thing that you're going to probably play over and over and over again. So you can get your monies out of it. But like, you know, it's not like an, an oink game where you can spend 20 bucks on it and then try it out. You know, this is like a $150, $200 board. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's Crokinole. I think my number four choice. What's, what's one of yours, Mark? So my number four choice is one that I have played the living. So I've played it so much that my cards are literally white all the way around the black border on this one because this has made it all around the world with me to play a whole bunch of times. I've made copies of this game so that I could play them when traveling. And this is Reiner Kinesia's two-player masterpiece, Lost Cities. Super simple to teach. You're literally just trying to make the best set. But if you don't make a good enough set, you're going to go negative on that pile. 
once you start it, you got to commit to getting a certain number of points. You play once through the deck and the game is done. And it's, ah, love this game. It's just, it's tense all the way through it. You're racing to get your cards out before the cards run out. And literally have taught this to a pile of people, kind of loved by all. So uh, Lost Cities by Reiner Kinesia, I think is one of the poster children for the best games in this segment. Completely agree. The one caveat I'll give it, this one is more of a two than it is a one on the rules. It's a little complicated. I've taught it to some people, Anna's mom particularly. The whole handshake thing is hard. And this segment really does encompass, you know, one or two rules, A or B strategy. So, you know, there's a big difference between a 1A and a 2B in terms of weight. And I'd agree with you. This is is definitely not a 1A. It's probably in the 2B zone. So my number three is certainly a 1A. This game is about as simple as they get. I'm speaking of no thanks. No thanks is a really simple game where there's a bunch of cards ranging from, I believe, one to 35. You flip over one. If you take it, you, you, whoever has the most negative points at the end will lose. And each card is worth its negative points. But the catch is if there ever is a run of cards from like 31, 32, 33, 34, you only score the lowest one. So you may want it for certain reasons to connect or whatever. But the fun thing is you get to say no thanks and you get to put these little discs out there that are hidden from everybody, right? And then once uh, somebody runs out of disc, usually with the big ones, or if somebody says, ah, it's worth it enough, I'll take it, you get to grab all these little discs, and the discs are worth positive points. So super fun, really fun, makes the entire table laugh a lot. You can trap people by making them take something they probably don't, and it's always fun seeing who's going to be the first person who's going to have to reach out their hand and take it. But no thanks is a mighty fun time, and it's really cheap and accessible. It's a fun little game. That game's a masterpiece. I have played this at family weddings in the bar afterwards till like three in the morning with all my cousins. And everybody just laughing and yelling at each other and so much tension. The funny part is I have a hard time getting my wife to play this one because she thinks it's too mean. It is very mean, <laughs> but it's like not directly mean. It's 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 almost no, like it's snickeringly mean where it's like you're kind of walking on the ice and then somebody falls over. And I feel like Heather is such a nice person. She'd like feel really bad for the person that fell over while like me and you would yes. laugh at the person that fell over, you know, while laughing at them, while well, rushing well up them to make sure that they come up to it. But I feel like Heather would be like, oh, no, somebody fell over. You know, and we'd laugh <laughs> about it much I'll more take, quickly. I'll take that card so that you don't get stuck with it. Right. Completely different. You know, you're just kind of waiting to see who's going to fall on the ice. So that is no thanks. What's your number three, Mark? A game that I often fills the same niche for me and comes out at a very similar time that no thanks would come out is a game called Six Nymphed by Wolfgang Kramer and Amigo. Again, it's a card game. And I like it for a lot of the same reasons where everybody puts a card out there. There's a, a series of rows of cards. And if you're ever the sixth person in that one, you have to take the whole row and you have to take all the points that are on that row. And the goal of the game is to not get points. So you're trying to find that exact right card to metagame out, to put in there that allows you to not take one of those rows. And sometimes you end up with rows despite all your best efforts because everybody did exactly not what you thought they were going to do. And again, this is a game that you're <laughs> kind of walking around trying to make people slip on the ice. And sometimes you end up slipping over yourself in the process. And I have taught this game to a group of French people that did not speak a word of English and then proceeded to play with them for three hours with lots of laughs in it. Again, that's a game that is available for $12 and you could play for hours and have a ton of fun. We finally got you to play this a couple of weeks ago. Right. Or- well, well, and and as a little bit of caveat, this game is so accessible, you can just randomly play cards and do pretty OK at it. Um, <laughs> one of our <laughs> listeners and friends here, well, uh, it, it, it is an A and B strategy game. It so, is. Well, one, one of our, one of our friends here, one of our local friends, he uh, said that, uh, he doesn't like the game startups because his kids would be playing random cards and would beat him at it. And so I did the same thing for six nymph. Then the same thing happened. You know, it's just, it's one of those games where it's a little random, a little chaotic, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun little game. But to be honest, you did finish in fourth place in that game. Did I, I, I was doing well until the end and then I blew up pretty bad. Yeah. There was like you, three, three rounds in a row. Last, so I'll look it up while, 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 while we're I, summarizing this game and, and figure it out. You finished no higher than third. So I wouldn't, I maybe wouldn't trumpet that strategy too loudly. No, but it worked, you know, <laughs> I couldn't. We'll, we'll, we'll okay, see. If you want to finish in third out of fourth place, <laughs> there you go. What's your number three choice there, Jake? Oh, I, I didn't record any winners. I just said we played. Dang it. I don't remember. So my number two choice here is a game that we've mentioned already. One of my favorite games is King Domino in this space. It has a beautiful little presentation to it, which really can draw newer players in. It has a really easy to understand draft mechanism that kind of makes sense to a bunch of new players. 
And then it has a kind of fiddly tiles part where you're kind of building your own little board. So even if you get trumped in this game, you kind of feel good because you made your little kingdom. I mean, King Domino won the 2017 Spiel des Jahres. I mean, that totally makes sense. It's a really accessible, great game that works with a lot of different people. I've taught this game to a bunch of people. It plays really quickly in about 30 minutes. And it's a game that, boy, I could certainly play this one actually multiple times in a row because both parts of this game feel good. The The drafting of the pieces feels good. The building of your little building feels good. Plus, you have this uh, multiplication factor on there. Like if I do it really well, my score really ramps up fast. Right. And it feels really good to get a big score. That makes you feel really smart. Yeah. Uh-huh. Completely so, agree. I love this game. It's a great choice. King Domino's a winner, dude. It's a it's a great little game. I haven't played it much this year, but I mean it's it's such a fun little game. It's worked well with all of my normie friends. What's your number three there, Mark? So I'm apparently playing off the uh the, the games that are my old time favorites that I love for a long time. And this is one that is the game that got me into gaming. So if we're talking about really great games to transition people into gaming. Well, I'm sitting here today because of this game. And that game was published in 1957, 56, 55, somewhere in there by the master Sid Saxon published by 3M Games. I'm talking about Acquire. Acquire is a financial stock game. That is as easy as it can get. You take some tiles. There's some randomness here, right? Because you're drawing tiles. But then where you place those tiles causes you to control mergers between those things. And when you do mergers, that's when you get paid. And when you get paid, you can buy more stocks. And at the end of the game, it's a matter of what stocks you own. You're the majority holder and what chains are the biggest. And if you have the most of the biggest chains, you're going to win this baby. And I've probably played this 30 or 40 times and would play it again tonight. I love this game. Jake, uh, did, have you played this game? No, that was what I was about to confess to you. I've never played Acquire, and I'd love to try it sometime. Oh, man. I, you know, you got to be going into it realizing that there's a random factor oh, I mean, to it. Fine. It's not. Well, I think that's the thing that's interesting. It's a financial game, and you do not want to put it on the same shelf as other financial games we play. But having said that, it's fun, and kind of anybody can get in and play it. No, I would certainly love to try this game. It seems really fun. Boy, you can all day long find copies of the, you know, the, the 50s and 60s releases from 3M. This has been republished a million times and you can find the old ones on eBay for functionally nothing. I mean, I think I paid $18 for my early 60s vintage version of this one. And I love it for that fact. I have no desire to buy a newer copy of this. Uh, Great. So that is Acquire. My number one is one that we both very much love. And I was surprised it was on your list. It's one of my most played games of last year. I'm speaking of Azul. Azul is... Jake. Go ahead. That's because you made the list first oh, and I didn't want to copy you. You didn't want to copy. It should be. <laughs> Azul is great. Azul is, I think, my favorite <laughs> game to play with people that don't really know games that well. I, I agree with that. Yeah, this is my go to. Um, it's pretty fast. It has great decisions on it. It's just beautiful, clanky little bits, you know, where people get drawn in. There's a lot of strategy in it. It's pretty interactive. You can take what people want. There's a lot there for people that have played it a bunch. I mean, I played it 20 times this year and I still would happily play it again. Azul is wonderful. It's it's a great game. Get it if you don't. It's, I think, my favorite modern classic. I do think that this one is kind of pushing pushing the fringe on the 2B. I mean, this is on the upper limits of the 2B, both in terms of rules. I mean, explaining the, how you take things and where you put them and how you slide the pieces over and especially how you score can be a little daunting doing the newest of the new players, but they usually pick it up pretty quickly. Agreed. And strategy wise, this is deepish. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. this is, again, kind of, I think, pushing the fringe on what a B is. So. You know, I I agree it's a 2B, but you're knocking on the door. Oh, I knock on that door. This is as much knock as I can get, which your next one, I can see on the list here. It's just as much of a knock. So I'm happy we both we both went a little aggressive. But oh, yeah, a thousand percent. Agreed. Azul is great. Yeah, it's the explanation of the rules thing um, of the scoring. But for one, you can all score in a, in, in, a, in a turn and so you can make sure they score correctly. The other thing is the best way to word it is you will always score every row and column counting the piece you played multiple times. But if you don't make a row or a column, you just score one point. And usually with that, they kind of get it of the length of the thing. So anyway, that is Azul. That is a better way of explaining it. Yeah, that is a better way than I explained it, I think so. It's almost like I played it 20 times last year. There is Azul. <laughs> but that's my number one game. So Mark, why don't you give your last one here? Again, I want to do uh, push the line on my last choice on what is a what is in this segment of games because of the fact I wanted to make the point that these are not all super light party games. And this one is the polar opposite of super light party game. This game's painful. (laughs) It does not make you happy. 
And it's it it's pretty dark. But at the same time, as the more I thought about it, it's actually a pretty quick game to teach. And just because it's hard doesn't mean it's necessarily a lot of strategy behind it. And I'm talking about The Grizzled by Fabian Rafaud and Juan Rodriguez, published by Simon. Come on. This is a game about life in the trenches in World War I. And we've waxed Rhapsodic about this game on a whole number of occasions. And, you know, it's an experience to play. And I think it's one of those that might be a stretch for new gamers, just theme alone and feel alone. But it certainly meets, in my opinion, the definition of what a 2B is. Agreed. It depends. If you're the person who knows how to play the game, then yes, if you have one person who knows how to play, everybody else is having a 2B experience. But the person who's running the game and moving all the cards and all that stuff, they're probably having closer to a three scenario, maybe a strong two. Yeah. If you've got somebody that knows how to play and set up the game, then yeah, for sure. Which that, is always that can, us, right? That can make it, an, that, yes, that can make it an easier experience for everybody else. Because really, at the end of the game, your turn choice is the, do I play a card? Or if I can't play a card, then I got to pass. <laughs> There's not a ton of decisions to make when you're actually playing your cards out. Agreed. Yeah, Grizzled is great. One of our favorite co-ops. It's amazing that it made this list. Yeah, I was digging through the list trying to figure out what was on there. And boy, there was actually a lot of games I could have picked in here. And I, I sort of wanted to give some examples of the fringes of this because most of these games are pretty darn obvious. And so I wanted to sort of explore the shadows of this yeah, I, I think particular niche a little bit more. I think I did the gaming moguls, obvious choices. You did the B list, the the, the kind of the, the, the B side of the tape, the deep track, the deep track. There it is. So I think one other thing that we're going to do for each one of these segments, too, is we're going to say games that we just like won't play in this sector. And I think what's interesting about this sector is I think this will have the least amount of electric fence, the games that we just don't really want to play again because of all the things we've mentioned before. You know, like the games are pretty fast. They are. They get out of the way quickly. They're somewhat unoffensive. Yep. So with that said, Mark, do you have any games that you wouldn't play in this category? I'm really not going to run out and play party games. You know, I yeah. think we've made that point pretty clear. Social deduction games I don't love. I don't. So I'm not clamoring to play werewolves and your resistances and avalons yeah. and all that I, I stuff. Blood on the Clock yeah. Tower holds no desire for me. <laughs> so that's that's going to be the thing that I'm almost certainly going to try to suggest something else if that comes up. Agreed. Yeah, I have Bang on here. I have uh, Cards Against Humanity. You know, those kind of games where it's like, Fine, you know, but those games are usually played in a different group of people. So that 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 clearly is not where we're at. But the one one I will say, and I promised I would say this was I don't think Point Salad is very good, and it certainly lives in this category. It is a game I wouldn't <laughs> Why, Jake? Why? Everybody it's so loves good. this it's game, so Jake. Good. No, it's 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 not that good. And the fact that the freaking designer punted a decision on it <laughs> on how the ruling on the words are supposed to work, just ridiculous. Anyhow. So that is our one A slash 2B kind of sector. That was fun. Keep an eye out for the the next couple of explorations on this. We're going to do kind of all of them kind of moving forward. So it'll be fun. Jake, which one do you want to do next? I don't know. We got a, we got a bunch of choices. I don't know. What do you think should be our next one? Let's let's be a little negative because I think this was pretty positive. Let's, let's, let's do the games that are harder to get the rules of than kind of what we get out of it. Maybe the Ameritrash section. Oh, okay. So this would be the upper left, the green segment. This would be four and five rules and like A and B strategic weight. Yeah. Yeah. That should be exciting. That'll be something. <laughs> All right. Being that this is neither of our favorite segment, I think we'll have some things to say about that, won't we? Absolutely. All right. Well, good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us once again. We are the Gaming Moguls. Thanks and good night. This has been the Gaming Moguls podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at Gaming Moguls or reach us via email jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening. That was a bad transition. <laughs> it was.